personal testimony is incredibly powerful. I mean, you see it on, like if you're buying OxyClean or, you know, toilet paper or whatever, uh, somebody will give a testimony and it's a big deal for you. Now, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are personal testimonies of something that's happened in either the writer's life or in people that they associate with. Now, it's really important to understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all connected to an apostle. Now, an apostle didn't write all four, um, but they're all connected to an apostle. This is important to note. An apostle is simply, by definition, is simply somebody that walked with Christ that was commissioned by Christ. Okay? So, you've got four of these gospels. The gospel means good news. It's good news. Kind of four different personal testimonies about Jesus. And Matthew and John were apostles. Um, Mark was associated with Peter, kind of a close associate. Luke was an associate of Peter and Paul's. And so these guys write down what they saw or what they heard about what somebody saw about the life of Christ. Now, I, I like watching those lawyer shows. I, I like those because you know, you'll get somebody on the stand and then they'll trick them into saying something they really didn't want to say and you have to be really careful if you're going to be on the witness stand with a kind of a slick lawyer. And what it looks to me like is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were sort of this... this um, the process was... God came up, uh, had four people from sort of different backgrounds write about the life of Christ from four different perspectives. Now, not all the stories are exactly the same. Some of them have some nuanced differences. They're all similar, but sometimes there's a nuanced difference. Somebody saw two people, somebody saw one person. And, and you might say, well, that, some people would argue that that diminishes credibility. I would say the exact opposite. If, if you're in a jury box and you're listening to testimony of, of eyewitnesses and they all give the exact same details the exact same way, you know they've been coached, there's some collusion involved. But if four people give similar stories of the same event from a different perspective, maybe one was standing there and one was standing there and they saw it from a different angle. Now all of a sudden, I don't feel like there was collusion. I feel like they've all seen the same thing and they all come to the same place. And so, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all kind of talk about Christ. And some of them have stories that are unique just to them, and some of them have stories that all of them include. Now, um, for example, the the birth of Christ. How how many of the four books contain the story of the book of Christ? Do you know this? (laughs) Two. Two, only two. Matthew and Luke talk about the birth of Christ. John doesn't talk about it, and uh, the other guy, uh, the other guy, whatever his name, Mark, yeah, that guy. Um, I was checking you, good job. Okay. So, but there are certain stories that made it into all four Gospels. Those are kind of incredibly important. Jesus' crucifixion in all four stories. Uh, The resurrection in all four stories. And the guy we're going to talk about today was in all four stories. So, Joseph of Arimathea, somehow what he did was so uh, amazingly important that all four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all decided to include his story in the Gospels. That doesn't make it like more important, but it's certainly interesting to me that this guy did something that people took note of. People who wrote about the life of Christ noticed 
what Joseph of Arimathea did. So he is our average Joe for the day, mostly because his name is Joseph. But because he wasn't incredibly average, he did some amazing things. I mean, he, was, he sat on a council. We're going to see some of this in just a second. Uh, he was sort of prominent in the community. But I think what makes him unique, but average in a way, is that he stood up for his faith, which is something we're challenged to do in our lives as well. So let's look at one of the accounts of Joseph's story. Here it is. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin, and we'll talk about it in a second. A good and upright man who had not consented to their decision in action. That's the, the action of crucifying Christ. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Jesus is hanging on the cross at this time. He asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had ever been laid. All right, now let's understand something here. To be a part of the council was, there was kind of a Jewish supreme court, the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin, depending on how you want to pronunciate it. 71 members. Um, of these 71 members, I mean, this, this is like, these are the guys that interpret the law. They're the ones who accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of of claiming God for himself as, as God, and this was a capital offense. They're the ones that brought the charges against Jesus. They're the ones that convicted Jesus. They're the ones that sentenced Jesus to death. They're the ones that went to Pilate who got him to consent to allowing them to crucify him or to take over the process of crucifying him. Now, to be convicted of a criminal offense, you had to have the majority plus two of the Sanhedrin. So if there are 71 of them, a simple majority is 36, plus 2 would be 38. That's the new math, and I did it before I got here because I didn't, couldn't do it like on the fly. But anyway, 38 of the 71. Now, this text tells us that Joseph of Arimathea wasn't one of the ones who consented to this decision. He was in opposition to the decision to crucify Christ. There's another guy by the name of Nicodemus. We've heard of him as well. Nicodemus also did not consent to this decision, all right? Now, it says he was a, a prominent member, a member of the council. Another, one, of the, uh, one of the other um, uh, stories, one of the other authors says he was prominent. He had uh, quite a reputation uh, amongst his peers as someone who was level and, and someone who made good decisions and that sort of thing. And what Joseph did that makes him extraordinary and what we can do as well is he stood up in the face of violent opposition for his faith and you don't know this but maybe you do know this we have these opportunities all the time you're at work and your coworker starts to say something and or starts to tell a joke or or something that you find offensive as a follower of Christ, and you have a moment where you make a decision. I'm going to stand up for my faith or I'm not. Or you're at school and, and they talk about something that, or they're, they're, going to, they're planning to cheat or, or something, and, and this is against what you believe as a follower of Christ, and you have an opportunity to stand up for it or not. And sometimes fear drives us to not do what we know we should do and to not speak because good grief i work here and now i don't want to be known as the bible thumper or i go to school here and i don't want to be made fun of because being made fun of isn't much fun and being called the bible thumper and being ostracized not much fun 
And, and Joseph faced the dilemma of how far do I go in my faith? How far am I going to let people know um, that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Because here's the big idea for the day. We all can go public with our faith. We can all do it. It's just do we all do it? And for a person like Joseph to be associated with a convicted criminal who's just been crucified was this incredible personal and professional risk on his part. I mean, not only did he publicly vote that Jesus shouldn't be crucified, but he publicly asked Pilate for the body and takes the body and treats it as a, uh, through, from, uh, from Jewish tradition. He took care of the corpse. Now, he left no doubt that he was a follower of, of Jesus. Um, and in this kind of most fearful moment, jo- Joseph decided to stand up. Now, this is kind of ironic for me because Jesus' closest associates, his disciples, they met in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays with them. They're praying all kind of together. And then Jesus goes apart and the guards come up and they arrest Jesus. And Jesus' closest associates, because of fear, flee for their lives. The, the ones who were closest to Christ left when they got scared. And yet, Joseph of Arimathea, when he got scared, he comes from the shadows into the light. He says, hey, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you that I'm a follower. Now, Jesus predicted this about his disciples. He said this very night, all y'all, that's the southern translation, all y'all will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. And sure enough, the shepherd was struck and the sheep ran away. And fear will cause you to do one of the two things. You can stand up in the face of it or you can wilt in the face of it. Now, look at what it said about Joseph. Was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for, what's our word? Fear. For fear of the Jews. Now, the thing that triggered Joseph going from shadow to light was the crucifixion. I don't know if he was there. We we don't know that exactly, but I suspect that he was. And he saw the way Jesus died. And it was something that for him triggered his faith to go to the next level. I'm going to be proud and I'm going to proclaim and I'm not going to be afraid. And even though this is going to cost me professionally, my reputation professionally, my my reputation in the community, even though this is going to cost me, I'm going to stand up for my faith. Jesus talks about this. One time he said, if anyone acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will openly acknowledge that person before my Father in heaven. But if anyone denies me here on earth, I'll deny that person before my Father in heaven. I mean, it's a pretty uh, straightforward verse. What, what I like about, I like many things about my wife, but one of the things I like most is when we're in public, she takes my hand. Because she's saying, I am not embarrassed to be with him. I know, it's really not that big a deal, but it seems awfully nice to me. Um, and I like that. I mean, she's claiming me as her own, and, and she's uh, saying, ladies, he's mine. I mean, that's awesome. I like that. I like that. It's kind of the point behind this verse. Jesus wants us to be 
proud <laughs> that we are his and he is ours. And there are ways that we can go public with our faith. And so we're going to talk about three different things, three different, three different ways. One is to say it, to say it, just to sort of proclaim it, to let people know. N- not, there's a kind of a balance here. Because, so, well, I'll give you the next thing. The warning is don't be a jerk about it. And the verse is awesome. Love should always make us tell the truth, and then we will grow in every way and be more like Christ. Love should always, we should speak the truth, we should speak the truth lovingly. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you about a, a story. This young lady is Taffy, Brods, or Taffy whatever that name is, uh, Actor, and then that other name that I can't pronounce. All right, so, she, she's a, a writer. She's a, kind of a, not a blogger, but she, she writes articles. And she wrote a, an article in GQ magazine about a pastor named Carl Lentz, who is Hillsong Church pastor in New York City. Now, uh, Miss Ackner is um, a non-practicing Jew. And really, it's sort of like they don't have a lot in common. But listen to what she writes. Here I have to say out loud how much I like Carl, this pastor. I like him even though he is ideologically opposed to things that are important to me. He is so worried for my soul. And this should annoy me, but instead it touches me, because maybe I'm worried about my soul too. And Carl wants so badly for me to enjoy heaven with him. How can I fault someone who is more sincere about this one thing than I have ever been about anything in my life? But on the other hand, if there's one thing that's true about Christianity, it's that no matter its cultural expression, it's still afraid for your soul. It still thinks that you're in for a reckoning. I, I, I love that expression. He is so worried for my soul. And it should annoy me, she says. But it doesn't. Instead, it touches me. Because he cares more about my soul than maybe I do. The, the question for us is when we speak truth, do we care about people's souls more than we care about being right? Because sometimes I'd rather prove a point then make a disciple. Sometimes it's more important for me to be right than it is to be righteous. What is my motive for speaking out? I don't know about you, but Facebook has gone insane. I mean, my blood pressure, I cannot even, I, I can't go there anymore. Because I read stuff from, I've got friends all over the country. And they write stuff and I'm just like, oh my word, you're stupid. I, you know, I, I don't write it. I say it, and then I don't write it. Because, listen, they've got a different perspective. They're coming from a different place. And I can't speak. It's hard to say you're stupid in love. It really is hard. Difficult. And there are times when I find myself uh, proverbially biting my tongue and not saying the things that I want to say because I'm not sure it helps their soul. The question is, is what I'm about to say going to help their soul? I don't, I, if I can't help your soul, maybe I should keep my mouth shut. Now, we live in a world where people are easily offended. And it applies to Christians as well. Look, if you're a follower of, of Christ and people say bad things about you, understand something. They, they've done this for millennia. For 2,000 years, we've received criticism because of what we believe and how we stand and what we think. 
We're not the first. We won't be the last. In fact, there's a great book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read this, you should make a point to read a bit of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, You know what it's about? Martyrs. People who believed in Christ, stood up for their faith, and were, were, were crucified, were executed for what they believe. You know that in today's world, in today, today, this world, uh, 2016 world in which we live, there are people who are dying for their faith every day. In countries where it's illegal to be a Christian, they are a Christian uh, young girls are taken from their Christian families and given to men as wives, if you want to call it that. Christianity has been put upon for centuries, for millennia. It's not like this is something new, nor is it something that we should be fearful of. Jesus, though, said that we're to say it, to be okay if if bad things happen for saying it. We're just not to be jerks about it. Then Jesus said this. This kind of leads me to my, first, to my second point. So saying it, speaking the truth in love, the second kind of goes after this, and it, it plays off of this text. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So not only do you say it, you also display it. It's clever, huh? There's another one, and it rhymes too. I, I, I want you to be very uh, excited with anticipation. That's coming up. You display it as well. Joseph was described, the text says he was good, he was a good and upright man. He did things, he lived a certain way. First Peter talks about it. People who don't believe are living all around you, so live good lives. That's in the Bible. Like, that's not common sense. That should be common sense, but it's in the Bible. Then they will see the good things you do and they will give glory to God on the day when he comes. Be a great neighbor. Help people. Find opportunities to serve. This is what we're called to do. This is who we're called to be. There's a book by the name of The Expected, Unexpected Adventure and the author is Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a man who was trained in both uh, journalism and law and he wrote for the Chicago Tribune for a while uh, in sort of the, the law section of the paper and then he became a follower of Christ he attended Willow Creek with his wife he really didn't want to go but he went and his heart was warmed and Jesus entered his life and Strobel became an advocate for Christ and he tells this story in the book about being on a flight and he's with a man who's from India and they're flying into um, into um, Midway Airport in Chicago and in the conversation the man tells Strobel that uh, his wife, he's going to take a bus from Midway to O'Hare Airport, the other big, large airport, and his wife's going to meet him at O'Hare, and she's going to have to get the two kids out of, you know, kind of out of bed to, to do this, and she's pregnant, and oh, by the way, there's a blizzard. And Strobel says, well, I've got a car at Midway, why don't you just let me take you home? And the guy consents to, to this, and then the, on the drive home, he sort of asks, why are you doing this? And this is the line from the book that I I just, I love this. Strobel says to this man in the car driving him home, has anybody ever done something so kind for you that it makes you want to pass a kindness along to somebody else? This is what Jesus has done for me. What a great line. Have you ever experienced grace 
Because when you experience grace, you want to share it with other people. And the guy gets out of the car and he says, "Uh, thank you so much. I'm going to have to think about the things you've said today. When we live out our faith, when we help our neighbors, when we serve one another, after the service and before the service, we had opportunity. Uh, we have a family in our church whose daughter's house burned down. And they lost everything. They didn't have insurance. And so we're collecting some funds for them. Because this is what Christian people do. We, we help each other. We help people in need. If you want to be a part of that, you can do that after the service. If you've not already done it. This is what we do. We, we not only say it, we not only display it but the third thing is we defray it we defray the cost it's kind of what we're talking about here and this call co- it cost joseph something to follow christ it cost him something and oftentimes when we serve it's going to cost us something you may know this story but if you do just sort of uh, play along with me there was a barber and and he was cutting hair one day and a guy comes in a police officer and he cuts his hair and He's feeling sort of magnanimous that day and generous. And he says, sir, thank you for serving our community. I appreciate the way you serve and protect and keep us safe. Your haircut is on the house. And the police officer was quite thankful. The next day, the barber comes to work. And there on his stoop is a box of 12 donuts. Kind of makes sense. The police officer had left it for him. So he's feeling good about his decision. That day, a florist comes in and Again, he's kind of feeling the urge to be generous. And so he says to the florist, thank you for beautifying our city. I appreciate it. And your haircut is on the house today. The florist was quite thankful. And the next morning when the barber shows up, there's a, a, a vase of a dozen roses there on the stoop. It makes him feel good and feels generous again that day. So the local pastor comes in and says to the pastor, pastor, thank you for serving our community and being so kind. And, and thank you for loving us. And Today, I'm feeling kind of generous. I'm going to let your haircut be on the house. And the next morning when he showed up, there were 12 other pastors hoping for another free haircut. <laughs> oh, good. You, you didn't know that. All right, good. All right, all right good. All right. Now, this is what Joseph did. Going to Pilate, Joseph asked for Jesus' body, and then he took it down, and he wrapped it in linen cloth, and he placed it in a tomb, and he, uh, the tomb that was cut in the rock, one in which... No one had been laid yet. Now, with following Jesus, there are both tangible and intangible costs. For, for Joseph, the intangible was his reputation. Uh, he's a member of the council. That's a big position. He goes public with his faith. There's certainly a, a reputation issue for him. But there was also tangible costs. Linen cloth wouldn't have been cheap. In fact, um, it talks about uh, he um, used... In one of the other accounts of this, uh, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes were used. Uh, That's extremely expensive. What's interesting to me is it was new cloth that they wrapped Jesus' body in. It was expensive uh, ointments and, and, and aloes and perfumes that they treated his body with. In fact, 75 pounds would be the, 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 the amount that you would use to prepare the body of a prince. Um, maybe they were giving us a message there. Joseph placed Jesus in his personal tomb. Now, to have a tomb carved into the rock was incredibly uncommon. Uh, Oftentimes, what this would look like, they would 
this stone would be carved out into a, a cave and, and there would be shelves basically in there where you would lay the bodies of, of members of your family, a, a kind of a crypt. And once the body was laid there, once it had decomposed, they would collect the bones and put it into a little box called an ossuary. This is the, the practice. And, they would, and by the way, that decomposing process would take months. But eventually you would go back in and you would collect the bones and you would put them in a box because land was not like land here. It was hard to come by. And for these different elements of this story, the, the linen cloth, the... the the aloes and perfumes and the myrrh and, and the, the tomb, all of these things were costly. They were costly. And it's interesting to me that Joseph was chosen to do this. And, and oop, I went one too far. Um, God positioned Joseph to do something kind of only Joseph could do. He had access to Pilate. Not everybody could go into Pilate's court and talk to him, yet Joseph was able to. And it begs the question, what is God positioning to you, you to do that only you can do? Because I think God positions us to do things that only we can do. It, it, maybe it's unique to you that you can speak to your boss, or you can speak to your employees, or you can speak to your friends, because nobody else is going to listen to you. Nobody else is going to uh, else is gonna, um, listen to or, or hear about Christ if it's not for you. Being a witness where you work or where you go to school or in your home. Maybe it's unique. They're not going to listen to a preacher, but they'll listen to you. What what have you been uniquely positioned to do that only you can do? Because I think Christ uniquely positions us to do things. And, And as we close today, let's go back to this verse. If anyone acknowledges me, Jesus says publicly here on earth, I will openly acknowledge that person before my Father in heaven. But if anyone denies me here on earth, I'll deny that person before my Father in heaven. Some, some you might say, well, you know, I failed at this. I've had opportunity. I've heard that voice, that small whisper in my spirit. I've known I should have spoken up, and yet I failed to do so. Well, listen, <laughs> it's never too late. Maybe you've missed opportunities. That's okay. Missed opportunities are missed. Doesn't mean you can't take opportunities now. I I don't think the Lord just sort of quits on us and says, well, I'm not going to give you any more options or any more chances. Yeah, okay, I missed an opportunity or two or three or 500. But now I have opportunities again. And if and when you determine I'm going to be bold in my faith, the Lord will give you opportunities to be bold in your faith. And so as we go into Thanksgiving, one of the things I'm thankful for is that Christ gave his life for me and for you. And when I eat that turkey, and I'm going to eat the fire out of it, when I eat that turkey, I'm going to be thankful that I live in a country, unlike so many others who follow Christ, where I can live out my faith boldly. This is one of the greatest things about our country is that we can live our faith. And we might be made fun of, and so be it. We're not the first, we won't be the last. The challenge is live out your faith. Father, thank you that this day you've given us to remind us that we can be and should be bold in our faith. Teach us how to do it well, not like jerks and not in a condescending tone. 
mostly help us love the souls of the people around us. Help us to love their souls. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.